0: Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection of race, social justice, and public policy. Uh, On today's episode, we are pleased to have Chloe Latham Sykes With us, hi, Chloe. Hi. Chloe is a doctoral candidate in educational leadership and policy at the University of Texas at Austin. She has formerly formerly worked as a college admissions counselor, legislative advocate, and policy researcher, and holds a master's in curriculum and instruction from UT's College of Education with a focus on cultural studies and education. Her work focuses on race, social inequities, and the policies and politics of educational reform. She has published an educational review, the Oxford Handbook of U.S. K-12 Education Law and the Texas Education Review, among others. Impressive. She also served as the graduate research assistant for the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy for the 2018-2019 academic year. Chloe, welcome to Race and Democracy.
1: Thank you for having me, Dr. Joseph.
0: Well, we'll dive right in. we have recently celebrated the 65th anniversary of the Brown Supreme Court desegregation decision. And I wanted to ask you about, um, in light of that watershed decision, uh, where are we at in the state of race, policy, segregation? Because in many ways, I think the narrative is that Brown basically fixed those things.
1: Mm-hmm. Brown didn't quite fix those things, Um, although it was obviously a landmark case that did so much for ending Plessy versus Ferguson and jump-starting the desegregation cases that definitely saw strides in the later 50s. And as they rolled over and and districts actually got court mandates to implement them, and after Brown II in 1955, with all deliberate speed, we saw desegregation occurring. Throughout the country, but then those numbers have shifted, and and there's a lot to account that to put that on. One was housing segregation, um, other policies that contributed to income stratification. Um, This is a contentious area, but the policies around school choice and how students. And parents decide where to send their children to school and where those public monies for education go. Um, All of those really led us to today where a lot of the contemporary debates around race and education have to do with the so-called achievement gap. Some people like scholar Gloria Ladson-Billings calls it the education debt that students of color are owed because they've been deprived educational opportunities. It's not an achievement gap.
0: I want to unpack these things because the UCLA Civil Rights Project just published um, with gary orfield and and other scholars, um, a, a really ter- terrific sort of summary of where we're at now. And I want to unpack where exactly are we, um, and where do Latino students fit into this? because we think about this as a black-white divide, which still exists. But certainly right now, Latinos are um, the second highest student population in U.S. public schools after whites, and then third is Mm -hmm. African-American. So where are we at now in terms of 2019, 65 years after Brown? Are things getting better, Um, if not perfect? Are we, have we rolled back? Where, Where are we?
1: I think there's a few things. One is, yes, most public student bodies are Latino and Black and Brown students. Asian students are one of the fastest growing populations in public schools, and white public school students have been starting to be on the decline proportionally Um, and just in terms of segregation just school assignment who goes to school together that's one question but then also who is in the neighborhoods and has different choices available to them uh, is another question how disparate funding is another question that brings together race and education and that separate and unequal part that brown was it ostensibly overturned, um, but we know that public schools can be very unequal in facilities, opportunities, staffing, funding. Um, in if you just drive across town, sometimes you know a mere five minutes away or something like that, depending on where you're living.
0: Now you said uh, two things I want to focus on on what you just said. One, who goes to school with each other, and then who lives in the same neighborhoods. Brown was supposed to, um, and we see this. Uh, Little Rock Central High School Crisis, 1957, but you see the Norman Rockwell painting mm-hmm. where the little girl and people are, uh, they, they, they've set a racial slur over the wall behind her. Uh, Brown was supposed to change that and black and white kids, which were the biggest two racial groups at the time, were supposed to go to school with each other. How come more likely than not right now and 65 years later, they're still not going to school together?
1: That's a great question. And people put a lot of time and money into figuring that out and answering it and figuring out policies around it. Um, but I am trained and I subscribe to critical race theory in education and the body of critical race scholars in education that have done a lot of work on this. And one tenet without getting too in the weeds, as I'm sure you're already familiar, is the persistence of whiteness and how whiteness and white privilege operates as property. And so I um, White whiteness as property means that better school funding, um, higher property taxes, school district boundaries, all can be perpetuated to preserve a power structure. And what we've seen since Brown, and before, but particularly since Brown, is that those educational opportunities, access to the best educational opportunities, specific enrichment opportunities, um, even within a school, AP tracking or honors courses, the best curriculum within a school, starts to have a reproduced power structure that tends to align with hoarding opportunities. It's called opportunity hoarding for white students and white families that disenfranchises the educational opportunities of students of color. And this has been documented in a number of ethnographies that scholars have done, where they've looked at um, even one, one particular book is called Despite Best Intentions by um, Diamond and Lewis. And they looked at a Chicago area uh, high school that was really wanting to implement better diversity programs and close their racial achievement gaps. It was a very diverse school. And they found through doing an in depth study in the school that. Even the way that discipline policies were enacted by teachers, the way that administrators reached out to parents and included parents in engagement, how they perceived different families based on race, um, how students were tracked within the school into different types of college-ready programs or regular tracked types of educational curriculum – All of that was then highly racialized, even though, despite the best intentions, the title of the book was to close the achievement gap, get everyone on the same page, graduate everybody and have a a very diverse and functioning school. So we see these nuanced ways that power and whiteness are perpetuated that create ongoing segregation and a lot of opportunities.
0: And then when you think about residential segregation, how does residential segregation then impact um, or lead to or exacerbate Uh, This public school segregation, kids not going to the same schools because they don't live in the same neighborhoods.
1: Yeah, I think this is one of the most fascinating things about education policy, because housing and education are two of the most democratic questions about citizenship. And we can get into that later if you're interested Public education, I think, is still one of the most democratic institutions we have. Free, compulsory public education. That's pretty amazing. And it is largely aligned with where you live. And that goes way back to the beginnings of K-12 schools and even, you know, getting funding and levying county taxes and all of that. Um, So housing and education are two issues about where your family resides and finds shelter and the future of your children. Those are really high-stakes questions, and they're tied together in the funding of schools and the assignment of students and in questions of belonging and neighborliness in society. So... That's a more in depth way to take it, but I think that you have to start there to th- see how high stakes housing and education decisions are. But as we saw um, as far back, you know, with Levittown and beginning with white flight from more urban centers of the country, we started to see white flight in suburbs that also had different school districts. So we immediately see, saw uh, segregated school districts. And what we've continued to see is not only that within schools, you can have segregation, or within a district, you have segregation between schools. And Brown broke down that the black school on that side of town and the white school on this side of town. But you, we now have more interdistrict segregation, where because of housing patterns, you have an entire housing area and it, the whole district boundaries, not just a school boundary, the district boundaries are segregated from the neighboring district. And that becomes really hard because there were court cases that ruled against, um, in Millican v. Bradley, interdistrict types of remedies that could take place um, to bus students out of a district or into a district um, to desegregate those schools.
0: And, and that leads me to um, a question about policy vis-a-vis racial integration. And Rucker Johnson's new book, um, you know, it's subtitled, um, you know, you know, how integration, you know, works (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, really looks at this history. Um, And I want to ask why, if desegregation was working in the 1970s and 80s, and when you think about districts like Charlotte's, uh, Charlotte-Mecklenburg in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, places in Atlanta, there's, you know, we usually think about Boston and busing and think it never worked. But in the 70s and 80s, there's about two decades where there's court-enforced desegregation, and all the remedies are not busing. Some of the remedies are volunteer um, to uh, achieve what sometimes the court called racial balancing. Why, if those things were working, like in the case of Charlotte, North Carolina, um, a city that in the 1980s trumpeted its racial integration, have those things been reversed, um, both in terms of policy, but also through the courts, both the federal district and, of course, the Supreme Court?
1: These are really good questions, also very contentious ones. Um, One reason would be working for whom? And again, getting back to the power structure of how whiteness and um, the opportunities, you know, we talk about white privilege. That means money. That means the power structure. That means assumed senses of safety and power and influence and opportunity. Who was integration working for now I need to read that book. And I am a big believer in obviously pushing civil rights through education policy that increases racial equity and access. Absolutely. But when you think of it of a question of power structures, and racialized power structures, who was it working for, and who wouldn't want it to work? And I think that when you look at um, in a chapter I did with Dr. Liliana Garces, who I know has been on your program as well, um, we wrote about new forms of kind of colorblind racial segregation mechanisms that the court has implemented to undermine a lot of the progress of Brown v. Board. And some of that was around um, the court's composition changing. Becoming honestly quite much more conservative in the '70s and '80s and moving forward, and starting to get away from um, just looking at the racially disparate impact of education policies and segregation, and having to have plaintiffs prove racially discriminatory intent, which is very difficult to do—that a policy is intentionally discriminatory because that's a slippery, um, that's a slippery way that might We called it in the chapter that race-neutral or so-called colorblind racism can operate. Um, and we see that a lot in school choice debates. And I'm not throwing just the whole issue of school choice under the bus. But school choice is about education, which some might say is a public good, and then also boiling it down to privileging the right of an individual parent mm-hmm. to choose. And so you're dealing with the conflict of individual school choice and A collective public democratic institution of public education and what your philosophy is on that. So I think to answer your question, getting back to it, it has depended on how the courts and how policymakers have seen public education as a collective good for democracy or as an individual right to be protected and preserved against perceived threats, perceived um, compromises to it or whatever the case may be because of racial segregation and desegregation.
0: Well, that leads me to um, talk about voting and voting rights, because um, when we think about education policy, so much of it is is connected to this idea of citizenship, which you raised earlier, and really sort of one of the um, most powerful weapons that citizens have in any democracy, but especially in American democracy, is the vote. And uh, you wrote... um, this basic policy brief, Methods of Voter Suppression in the 21st Century um, for the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. And um, it's really a fascinating document. Um, and I want you to talk about it and break it down because in the 21st century, you you show and illustrate here and you use some census data, you use some qualitative and quantitative methods, um, sort of how uh, sometimes people call it second or third generation Um, efforts at voter disfranchisement and voter suppression are are actually working. And you specifically look at Texas, too, as a case study. Um, And I know you've worked in the Texas-led, so I want you to, to talk about this and talk about, because I absolutely believe our education policy and inequities are related to voting and not just who votes and why, but who doesn't and why, why not?
1: Yes, absolutely. I fully agree. And um, so, yeah, in that brief, which is published on the CSRD website that we launched, um, I broke down some contemporary methods of voter suppression into three general categories. And it's certainly not a comprehensive brief, but these are some of the issues we see hit the news a lot. So one was around representation, according to uh, gerrymand- gerrymandered districts. And then we see a lot of issues of voter suppression come up through um restrictions to registration, such as voter ID laws. Um, of, and Texas was an early um, adopter of some voter ID laws. And
0: let's let's break these down, Chloe. Yeah. You talk about gerrymandering. What is gerrymandering?
1: Yes. So gerrymandering actually comes from uh, former Senator Elbridge Gerry, who proposed these salamander-shaped districts to kind of cordon off the voter block, essentially, of off constituents that were going to be favorable for a particular candidate, particular party.
0: So does it start off as partisanship and less racial disfranchisement, or was it always both?
1: So I didn't dig into the history of gerrymandering particularly, but I think that we could definitely discuss how Voting rights has always been racial and partisan, and um, the preservation of who who gets to vote, the pr- voting rights, who who's given voting rights, who for whom is it protected, is always an inherently racialized question in America. Yes.
0: Yeah. So gerrymandering is one way. Voter ID laws, and I know this has taken real shape after um, the Supreme Court 2013 Shelby v. Holder case. Yes. Which really basically. Nullified large or the strongest portion of the of the Voting Rights Act.
1: Right. Right. So that the Shelby v. Holder decision took away the the teeth of the Voting Rights Act of preclearance and states having to submit preclearing to, to get preclearance for changing their voter laws.
0: And why did states need to do the preclearance? Because I know um, it was about 16 states, parts of all of 16 states. Why did they need preclearance?
1: Preclearance was a way to address the historical inequities that we saw. And as we were talking about contemporary issues, that slipperiness of racism in foreclosing educational opportunities, housing opportunities, Uh, the preclearance law was a way to get beyond just, oh, this is just a different type of policy for ease or for resources or financial efficiency and to actually get at who does this disenfranchise and what is its impact? And is this actually going to infringe upon the voting rights of your voting populace and specifically your voters of color? So it was it was the bite in the Voting Rights Act, which made it very effective at first.
0: And how does voter ID laws, now that there's no preclearance, how does that negatively or does it negatively impact African American and other voters of color in the state of Texas and nationally?
1: It does tend to. So nationally, we know that voter ID laws are a restrictive statute um, because it is is—it's hard to get an ID. That requires transportation. It requires time off of work to procure an ID. It requires um, fees and financial barriers. Uh, it, Do I know most that
0: states require voter ID?
1: Right now, I'd have to check at the exact number, but A number of states passed it. I believe it was almost a half dozen states after 2006, excuse me, after 2006, and some passed voter ID laws illegally. And then they started to wise up and adjust their voter ID laws. Texas voter ID law at first was wrapped up in the courts and stymied for a bit. Um, But then uh, going forward, after it came out of the courts, they, they ruled on a different type of voter ID law that was cleaned up a tiny bit, but that passed legal muster and is in effect currently, where students lining up at the polls, you know, in 2018 at the midterms must have a an ID, a photo ID, and a student ID does not count um, to be able to cast a ballot.
0: And why doesn't a student ID count? Because it seems like that doesn't make any sense. What What's the purpose of that?
1: The purpose arguably would be that younger voters tend to vote Democratic and And historically, younger voters also are seen as not voting as much, not turning out as much. Now, they turned out in 2008 and 2012 during the Rock the Vote for uh, Barack Obama's first election in 2008. But they are seen as voting um, more progressive and, and certainly more along a Democratic ticket at times. And also, they're... One might say that you could tie that into a larger, and some my my higher ed colleagues might say this a larger attack on um, higher education, where higher education is seen as being elite, um, elite liberals in higher education that come, you know, students come into universities and they might only be in that jurisdiction, that municipality, for. Two to four to six years, depending on their tenure as a student. Um, there's been pushback from a lot of municipalities that don't want their representation guided by the higher education enrolled students that are that are there. And this is the crux of a court case currently um, that the NAACP has brought against Waller County because uh, Waller County is a very predominantly white county in outside of Houston, Texas, and it also is the home of Prairie View A and M University, a historically black college, and. The um, Prairie View and M students did not have access to an early voting site in the 2018 midterms, and Waller County has been the ca- has been the subject of multiple other cases um, litigating voter restriction, racialized voter restriction, because. Per the university and the student body is largely a student body of color as a historically black university. And some of that early legislation, I believe it was from the mid 2000s, but there are older cases specifically in Waller County um, actually litigated how higher education students enrolling in a university can or cannot be counted as residents to cast a ballot in that jurisdiction. And so a lot of that has been at the center of Waller County. And we see this case coming up again because it's a really sticky issue for um, when you get around to partisan divides, but also rural-urban divides and uh, a lot of those issues you see with universities.
0: Tell me about this whole notion of registered uh voter purges because I know in the 2018 midterm, we saw aspects of that uh, in the gubernatorial race that Stacey Abrams ran, but really all around tightly contested races where there are allegations, um, usually allegations by Democrats and people of color that Republicans and Republicans in charge, sometimes secretary of states and others, were purging voter rolls in an effort to suppress the vote and basically influence or steal elections what, what's going on with this uh voting purges
1: yeah this is a remarkable um and horrifying trend that's occurring across the country a number of states have enacted voter purges um i believe i i pulled a lot from the brennan center for justices reports they have a report just called voter purchase that I highly recommend um, because they do a really thorough job of going through and looking at the actual impact that taking people registered on the on the rolls off of those rolls has on voter turnout on elections overall um, and heartbreaking stories that you hear of people being turned away you know old veterans who have voted every election of their lives that they were able being turned away because they've realized that they've been purged. Um, I think in Wisconsin, over well over 17,000 people were purged um, prior to the 2016 election. Um, in Tennessee, in Virginia, there was at least a two to three percent impact in voter turnout from purges alone that the Brennan Center calculated. And in Texas, uh, we experienced this ourselves, that right now the Secretary of State, David Whitley, who has not been confirmed, he was appointed by the governor. And he, one of his first orders of business in January was to put out a notice to counties to purge almost 100,000 names from the Texas voter registration rolls. And a lot of people came forward and launched lawsuits and said, I am a citizen. I'm a naturalized citizen. And it came out as the investigation continued that the secretary of state's office was using outdated data that they knew was probably faulty from the Department of Motor Vehicles. So when someone has, is, a, for example, a legal permanent resident, they have a green card, they can get a, a legal driver's license. They go and they have to declare if they have citizenship or not. But then those people often natu- naturalize, um, you know, a few years later. They're, they are not required by law to update their state driver's license. And so by using that data, you had a lot of outdated data, and it was tens of thousands of people off of that hundred thousand person list that were incorrectly ordered to be purged. Um, The counties were incorrectly ordered to purge those people from their voter rolls. And um, right now, Secretary Whitley has not been confirmed by the Texas Senate. If he's not confirmed by the end of the session, which takes place, we're we're pulling up on the last week of session, then Governor Abbott will have to appoint someone else um, because this has really become a major issue. uh, And I believe a major bipartisan issue that, um, It's been taken very seriously by Texas senators of these accusations of voter purges and really damning evidence that that was an intent of the secretary of state's office.
0: And what were some of the effects of these voter um, purges in terms of... um The population that's registered to vote in Texas um, over time.
1: Well, it was since we haven't had an election since those purges Mm -hmm. that that order kind of came down. I believe it was issued in January to counties um, because counties really handle our our elections and um, counties were told you need to purge these people. And there was not very much instruction, and they were very much encouraged to go ahead with that. So some counties did. Some counties said, wait a minute, this doesn't look quite right. We're going to hold off until further instruction. But they were very clearly instructed to do it. And then it got tied up in the courts, and a number of lawsuits have been brought against the Secretary of State's office. So the impact isn't quite known, but we do know over well over 10,000 people were incorrectly noted as being non-citizen voters and what that the it's not just a matter of people being disenfranchised though that's incredibly important it's also a matter of spreading fear about voter fraud that is untrue that is false um because a lot of these numbers have been um one could argue, drummed up in order to say, hey, look at this voter fraud, these hundreds of thousands of voters that are fraudulent registrants in Texas. And that's just not true. That that was outdated data and it was pushed upon the counties. And it's intended, I, I would say, I would argue, to carry forth a myth that voter fraud is rampant when really what we are seeing is state-sponsored suppression.
0: Is this one of the reasons why when you look at some of the data from your report, Uh, the percentage of Texas voting age population registered to vote hit a peak in 2000 at 85%. It dipped to 71% in 2010. It dipped back. It went back up, ticked back up to 79% in 2018. Um, uh, And you, you talk about, you know, restrictions for even people who cast a successful ballot Uh, and, and uh, Texas is is very restrictive in terms of even people casting a successful ballot. So explain that to me. When you say restrictions, what what are some of these restrictions, and what has Texas done for somebody who does vote, but for some reason is that vote not counted?
1: So in the brief, my section on restrictions was looking at um, largely. The technical and mechanical issues that can come up, um, as well as the political rhetoric like voter fraud and spreading fear of, oh, my gosh, what if I've actually been purged and it's a felony to try to go vote? So that's one way that you have restrictive um, influence is from the myth of voter fraud and perpetuating fear that is highly punitive. But also uh, most states have incredibly outdated voter machines, uh, voting machines that do not offer a paper ballot. Um, in order to have a paper trail, a paper audit. and these are called DREs, direct recording um, direct recording devices um, for, for getting the exact acronym, but these are the voting machines we mostly use. Most states in the country are using a lot of voting machines that are no longer manufactured, are outdated, cannot be serviced properly. And if they are these DREs, direct recording types of machines, they do not have that paper, trail to audit the actual votes cast. So if there is, for instance, a cyber hacking attack, as we know happened in 2016, where our votes were being influenced, or if there's just the system goes down and there's a wonky machine, um, these, these that would restrict someone's ballot, even though they are properly registered. They legally cast a ballot, but it won't be counted because of those types of restrictions.
0: I want to talk optimistically now, sure. policy-wise. What can we do? Because you really do list some... Um important policy recommendations, both in Texas and nationally, that would really strengthen the voting process, which ultimately strengthens our democracy.
1: Yes, so when I I think about what we can do, and thinking from, as a social science researcher, as I am, I think about not only how do you have higher voter turnout, greater registration, but also what is the purpose of voting in our society? Mm -hmm. And what are the politics around voting? So um, one recommendation, for example, and I know um, author Ari Berman um, includes this in his book, Give Us the Ballot, is automatic voter registration, which means any time that a person interacts with a uh, state agency, public institution of some kind, for instance, renewing their driver's license, they're automatically uh, updated on their voter registration. And Oregon has that. And Oregon does have that. Texas does not. Now, I actually had an interesting conversation with someone um, because one issue that could come up with this in the politics of this is if someone, for instance, a legal permanent resident is updating their information and they're automatically registered to vote, but they're not legally registered to vote and they didn't choose to do so. They did not choose to fraudulently do that. Um there can be issues and concerns from some civil rights groups about entrapping people. So wholesale automatic voter registration, some civil rights groups say we don't necessarily want that because we don't want people to get wrapped up in something where they're not actually an eligible voter. So that type of legislation is really powerful, but would need some checks to make sure um, that it is eligible citizens who are deciding. They're able to be enrolled and no one gets entrapped in any type of system. But automatic voter registration is really important. Same day voter registration, which Texas does not have, would also be great where you can register to vote and turn around and cast a ballot right there at the uh-huh. same spot on the, on Election Day or during a day of early voting. Texas also has a lower than average early voting span, time span, the average number of days for early voting nationally is about 19 days. Texas offers 17 generally. That can vary by municipality, but 17 generally. Um, But some states have higher than 40 days of early voting. You know, imagine if you had more than a month to go vote um, and it wasn't crammed into a two week span that also has time restrictions and you're racing home in rush hour traffic or whatever the case may be. So these are some ways that can lift not only create new statute that enhances um, voter access and equity, but also that lifts and prevents restrictions on voting.
0: I like the whole idea of making Election Day a federal holiday.
1: Yes, that's another one.
0: Yeah, and I, I'm sure you'd have to include some child care and some babysitting care there too, to let people go out and vote, especially when your children are too young to perhaps just go to the polls and wait outside with with you and elder care as well. Absolutely. You know, for people who are infirmed. Um, all right. My, my final question, this has been a great um, discussion, is I want to connect um, education and voting. You know, when you think about education policy, the Brown decision is in 1954, May 17th, 1954. The Voting Rights Act is August 6, 1965. And then Shelby V. Holder is 48 years later after the Voting Rights Act. Um, I want to, ask you, you know, to to wrap up, what's the connection between really this assault on voting rights for people of color, um, poor people, uh, the elderly, um, and the Brown decision? These were, these were both the Brown decision and the Voting Rights Act were supposed to make the country more democratic and and expansively sort of reimagine citizenship. And it seems that 50 years later, 65 years later, instead of being able to tell our kids and our grandkids, man, things have gotten so much better, it seems like we're in a holding pattern in some cases. Some cases we've seen incremental progress. In some cases we're heading back. So what is that connection between that Brown decision, education policy, segregation, voting rights, voting suppression that we're seeing in the milieu right now?
1: Yes. So for me, I'll, I'll go back. I think it's an issue of citizenship. And I know that in your own writing, you talk about citizenship formally, such as eligibility to vote or something like that, but also the informal facets of citizenship, belonging, um, social acceptance, legal protections, um, those types of of components. Um, Is your language valued? Do you have access to basic resources? Are you able to navigate the public sphere? Um, These are all questions of citizenship. Who belongs in society? And what are the measures of inclusion and exclusion? And how do they operate? And I think with education and with voting, I mean, certainly you have the education towards civic engagement, um, where people become you know, more educated or more likely to turn out to vote, have a better sense of how to navigate our political systems and our social institutions, but also just the question of what is the purpose of a free, compulsory K-12 education system? That is a remarkable system that I believe we need to preserve and, and strengthen with Everything that we do, which is why I've decided to base my career on trying to preserve and strengthen that institution because it's fundamental to cultivating an educated democratic citizenry. And voting is then a mechanism within that, right? That's the way that one is able to then leverage their knowledge and their opinion and their preference as a private citizen and make that into public representation of some kind. Um, But education is a core institution that guides us in that. And so they are inherently and fundamentally linked. And really, I do believe the the fabric of at least the best ideals of the American democratic society.
0: Wow. We'll leave it at that. That's powerful. Uh, Voting rights and and educational access really uh, self, uh, they're they're reinforcing um, ideals in this society. And the further away we get from each, really the more and more our democracy recedes and deteriorates. Uh, This has been a great conversation. Um, Thank you, uh, Chloe Latham Sykes, uh, who's a doctoral candidate in educational leadership and policy at UT. And she's been the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy's graduate research assistant uh, for the 2018-2019 academic year. And she's also the author of a great policy brief that's available on our website, um, csrd.lbj. Um, .edu, um, methods of voter suppression in the 21st century. Chloe, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph, that's P E N I E L J O S E P H, and our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.